I'm, uh, I'm going to talk about a, a topic that, that really is a, a very controversial one. Uh, if you've been reading about this in, in the papers and in Time magazine even recently, it's uh, God versus Darwin. And I've talked about this in a lot of different venues. This is the first time I've done it in an arena. And, and I, I've been told that the, the scoreboard is going to be, as we're, as we're going along in the talk, giving the Darwin score and the God score. So uh, you'll be able to keep track of who's winning as we go along. Uh, uh, but really, I, that's, that's not the way that I'm going to do this, and, and I hope that as we go along you'll see that the stereotypical way in which this uh, controversy gets presented as uh, a battle between science versus religion uh, really uh, misstates uh, the way in which uh, uh, things really happen. Uh, there is a sense in which this is creationism versus, uh, versus evolution, uh, but it's not really something about science against religion, and I hope that as we go along you'll, you'll get a sense of why that's so. So I'm going to start by, by just talking about the trial. Uh, and this is something that I'm sure you might have, have read something about because it was very widely covered, as you'll see here, just some of the, uh, the media sources that, that uh, had articles, uh, newspaper, uh, magazine, uh, TV, from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal all the way down to uh, Rolling Stone and, and People magazine. So this was something that was very broadly uh, covered uh, nationally and internationally, of great interest for a, a lot of different reasons. Uh, here's the, yours truly, uh, as uh, I'm walking to the court. Uh, this is the third day of the trial. Uh, the, the, the lead lawyer uh, for the plaintiffs, uh, Eric Rothschild, is, is there next to me. Uh, next to him is Tammy Kitzmiller. She was the, the lead plaintiff of, of the 11 parents that sued the district. Uh, this is the walk from the law office to the courtroom. They call it the perp walk. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the one time, of course, when uh, the, the cameras are allowed to, to film people, and they, they said, you know, walk slowly enough because the cameramen are going to be running backwards. Uh, and that's, of course, the way in which this, this happens. Once you're in court, uh, things are much more, um, uh, much more sedate. Um, so this was, this was a, a trial that really, for the first time, put in... Uh, to uh, the legal decision-making process, um, the status of intelligent design creationism. And this was a, a trial that, that really the intelligent design group had been looking for for many, many years since they had, uh, had gotten the movement together. It was really aimed at, at having a test case. Uh, and they were very, very uh, confident uh, about uh, the fact that they thought they would win in court. Let me just give you a few examples of this. This is a, a quote from William Dembski, one of the leaders of the intelligent design movement, several years before there was a, a, a court case. He says, I'll wager a bottle of single malt scotch should it ever go to trial whether ID may legitimately be taught in public school science curricula that ID will pass all constitutional hurdles. So, I mean, really even pretty cocky about this. Um, he put together... Uh, a, a white paper for the, uh, the attorneys that were defending the school district, defending intelligent design there, um, and he called it the vice strategy. And here's a picture from the, the document. Uh, this was to brief the lawyers on how they were to, to challenge the expert witnesses. And you'll notice that he, he uh, visualized this with a, a vice crushing the heads of his opponents. Uh, on his website uh, months before, he had this picture of, of a little Darwin doll with his head in the vice. Uh, and again, the, the idea here was, you know, we will, we will crush them in this, in this circumstance. They'll be on the stand. Um, they'll have to answer the questions. Uh, and um, 
will, uh, will prevail in this case. Um, even after the trial um, got started, the, the view from the intelligent design group was, was really very um, um, positive with regard to the judge who had been picked. Uh, and here's something from one of the intelligent design web blogs in Common Descent, um, where they're talking about the judge, Judge Jones. He's a good old boy brought up through the conservative ranks. So they were happy with his choice. The, the judge gets picked really by a computer at random, so we, no one knew who was going to be picked, but they were very happy with this choice. They talk about the fact that he was an assistant scoutmaster, uh, so that counted as something. Uh, a buddy of, of Governor Tom Ridge, and more than that, appointed by GW himself. So they really took this as, as being someone with impeccable uh, conservative credentials. Um, mentioned how uh, George W. Bush had himself uh, come out just the previous year in favor of uh, intelligent design. Um, mentioned how, how um, he was a, a friend of, of uh, others who, who supported this as well. And, and say, um, he's not going to go against his political allies here. Right? He's one of us, uh, and clearly this is, a, this is a win for us. Now, they expected a win, and they said the ACLU is obviously going to appeal, so this won't be over uh, until it goes to the Supreme Court. You see in the, the bottom line there, it says, but now we own that too. Uh, so they were very, uh, very uh, sure about, uh, about this. But what happened in the case? Uh, what was the final decision? Not quite what, uh, what was expected. Here's the headline when the decision was announced. Uh, Breathtaking inanity uh, was the quote from the uh, official opinion of the court. Um, the federal judge minces no words as he comes down against uh, evolution's rival. Uh, here you have a picture of, of Tammy Kitzmiller and uh, Christy Ream, another one of the, the parents, uh, giving each other a low five in, in, in response when they heard the verdict. Uh, here are a couple of, of quotes from the judge's decision. Intelligent design uh, says the, the court is a religious alternative masquerading as a scientific theory. Uh, more than that, um, intelligent design is creationism relabeled. And then the legal decision that teaching it in the public schools is unconstitutional. That's the, um, the ultimate uh, resolution, the legal resolution here. Now, what was it that, uh, that the, the judge uh, said about this in general? He says, uh, ID aspires to change the ground rules of science uh, to make room for religion, specifically beliefs consonant with a particular version of Christianity. So these are the elements of the... Uh, of the legal aspect of the case that I'm going to talk about in, in, in part. So one of it is the, the nature of, of science here, that uh, it's changing the ground rules of science. It's not science, it, it violates that. Uh, and more than that, it's religion, and not just any religion. Uh, it's a very particular, it's a sectarian, narrow form of religion. Uh, and of course, the Constitution not allowing the establishment of religion or preferentially um, um, giving benefit to one religion over another uh, wouldn't allow any of these things, and that's what leads to the unconstitutionality. So that's the, the end of the story in terms of, of how things worked out, uh, and as you might imagine, the intelligent design group was not quite as happy uh, with the decision uh, and with the judge as they were originally. So here's someone from the, the intelligent design group, John West from the Discovery Institute, uh, opining about the opinion 
and the judge afterwards. He says, Judge Jones got in his soapbox to offer his own views of science, religion, and evolution. He makes it clear that he wants his place in history as the judge who issued a definitive decision about intelligent design. This is an activist judge who has delusions of grandeur. Uh, and it's interesting that Judge Jones, in his opinion itself, had predicted that people who objected to this would call him an activist judge. I mean, this has become such a common uh, term of, of abuse. Uh, and he specifically said, I will be called this, but this is resolutely not an activist court. So he anticipated this objection. So that was, that was uh, quoted uh, from uh, the Intelligent Design Group in, in a lot of the papers. But there was a lot more. On the websites, they objected to this as well. So here's from... Uh, one of the ID websites, they called his view the Grinch opinion. It, it was issued December 20th, so around Christmas time. Um, the picture of the Grinch, it says, a recent interpretive illustration of Judge John E. Jones III. So they, they thought of him as the Grinch who, sold, who stole Christmas. Uh, here's a, an article from the way uh, Phyllis Shafley uh, described it. She said he was a false judge who made a mockery of this case. Judge John Jones uh, the third could still be chairman of the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board if millions of evangelical Christians had not pulled the lever for George W. Bush in 2000. Yet, this federal judge who owes his position entirely to those voters and the president who appointed him stuck the knife in the backs of those who brought him to the dance uh, in the Kitzmiller v. Dover trial. Okay. Now, this is starting to get to be stronger language, right? Sticking the knife in the back, that's, that's pretty aggressive. And, and this is the thing that one finds as one... Uh, reads the, the literature from intelligent design, they really speak about this in terms of a culture war uh, and uh, describe it as a military, um, uh, a military fight that they're, uh, they're after. And the terms are very pugilistic and militaristic. Uh, here's something from a new website that just came up. Oops, I missed a... Uh, here we go here. Uh, Judge Jones, uh, this is from a, a site, uh, again, something that William Dembski has put up. Um, this is their front page. There's a little caricature of Jones. It says, Judge Jones, he's a wacky, zany activist. He's a rogue, and he loves that old-time Darwinian religion. So, you know, here now they're, they're not as happy with him as they were before. And this is actually a site that's encouraging high school students to join up in the movement. And, and as you see in the middle, it says, join the OE Army. Uh, OE is the name of the site. Um, so uh, really here uh, is, is part of a, a turnaround in the view uh, following the case. Um, there's William Dempsey down to the right, Jonathan Wells, another one of the, uh, the ID guys, and uh, their new book, The Design of Life, and I'll mention that a little bit later. Okay, so uh, this is the shift from before and after. Now, even though some of this is a little amusing, uh, it's important to recognize that, that this is really serious business. And this was an article that came out a, a little while ago that talked about what had happened to Judge Jones following the case. Uh, and he revealed that he and his family had to be put under protection of federal marshals because he had received uh, death threats following the, uh, the issuing of the verdict. Uh, and the quote from Judge Jones here says, if you would have told me when I got on the bench four years ago that I would have had death threats in a case like this, as opposed to, for example, a crack cocaine case when I meet out a heavy sentence, I would have told you that you were crazy. But I did, and that's a sad statement. Okay. So this is something we really need to keep in mind. The, the folks who uh, worry about this uh, are very serious, and some, some uh, um, dangerously so. Uh, that's... Uh, um, that's unfortunate. So let's look now back at what actually happened in Dover, what was the policy, and how this proceeded. 
Um, so Dover, Pennsylvania, a small town south of Harrisburg, uh, and creationists on the board who got a majority uh, decided to implement a policy that would introduce um, intelligent design into the science curriculum. So they wanted to update the statement. They did update the statement, um, saying that students would uh, be required to learn about supposed gaps and problems in Darwin's theory and be told of other theories of evolution, including, but not limited to, intelligent design. So um, explicitly putting this in. Now, actually, this is an interesting hybrid policy. It was one that explicitly promoted ID, which is what the intelligent design group had been doing previously, but they had been recognizing that that wasn't working for them, so they had actually started backing away from that and recommending that you not uh, uh, call for this uh, by name and to talk just about uh, critical evaluation of evolution and gaps and problems. So this was actually something that combined both of them. Uh, it hadn't quite got the message that they shouldn't have mentioned ID directly, uh, and it did include both. So it actually made it a very good test case for both of the strategies that the intelligent design group was making. The second thing that the policy did was uh, um, uh, bring in the key intelligent design textbook that was designed for um, public schools of pandas and people. That's the cover of it there. And that was listed as um, something that would be available for students. And 60 copies of this were anonymously donated to, uh, to the library. Uh, when this happened, um, there was someone uh, who, who wound up calling me, uh, who was in, in England, but who had come from a school district in Pennsylvania, who was so, someone who's a scientist, who was so uh, angry at, at this. And, and he said, you know, would you mind uh, if I had 60 copies of your book, uh, Tower of Babel, donated to uh, the school district? And I, I actually should have said yes, in retrospect. Uh, but what I, what I said was, you know, uh, what would really make a better statement is if instead you had 60 copies donated of different books uh, to give the scientific explanation because there's just a huge, huge range of evidence uh, and that would really make a better statement. Um, the other thing that was in uh, this was that a disclaimer was to be read uh, when there was evolution taught uh, that uh, uh, students would hear and supposedly the teachers were to, to read this. Here's the uh, excerpt from the disclaimer. It says, because Darwin's theory is a theory, continues to be tested, um, the theory is not a fact. Now, this is actually language that we've seen again and again uh, from creationist initiatives, contrasting the scientific notion of theory uh, with uh, um, the way the person on the street hears it, which is theory as just someone's guess and so on. Obviously, in science, when we talk about theory, gravitational theory, cell theory, gra uh, relativity theory, and so on, we don't mean it in that sense. But they always apply the term here in that colloquial sense, essentially to make people think that this is just a guess, right? The scientists are just uh, unsure about this, which of, which of course is not the case. Um, they talk about here gaps in the theory uh, for which there's no evidence. Uh, and then it goes on to, to talk about intelligent design and pandas and people available for students. Now, the teachers were supposed to read this, and one of the things that sort of made me stand up and cheer when I heard about this as the case was developing uh, was when the biology teachers as a unit uh, decided that they would uh, refuse to read the statement, uh, that it was professionally irresponsible of them, uh, that this misrepresented science. And for those of us in, in the university where academic freedom is, is really taken for granted, that might not seem such a big thing, but you really don't have that kind of academic uh, freedom in the public schools. And really they were putting their jobs at risk by doing this. 
um, taking a professional stand for the integrity of science. So that, that really just, it, it just really made me, uh, made me very proud of, of the teachers who were on the front line of this. Okay, so now let's talk about what it is that's being proposed as the alternative. What is uh, intelligent design? So here's um, a brochure that the Discovery Institute had put out several years ago um, from their Center for the Renewal of Science and Culture, which was a, a subgroup within it that dealt with this particular issue, um, where they were explaining what uh, intelligent design is. Now here you see the image with uh, God, uh, the, the Sistine Chapel image, uh, reaching out to DNA. Uh, in their original logo, they actually had the full image with Adam there, but they had removed Adam and, and put in the coil of DNA. Later ones, they, they uh, took God away a little bit more to make it a little more nebulous, and their logo became, well, actually a, a nebula, <laughs> uh, God's eye nebula, uh, all to sort of progressively hide uh, the religious uh, aspect of their view. Because what they want people to think is that this is a scientific view. And if you look inside, this is the way they describe it. Design theory, they say, is a new science for a new century. And, and they appeal to a number of different things, and it's important to recognize this. It's not just about biology. Here's an example from it where they say this is true in physics, too. So they're actually um, uh, um, drawing from other, uh, other sciences. It's not just an attack upon biological views, evolutionary views, but physics, uh, geology, a whole range of things wind up getting involved as well. Um, but it's biology that's the center. So here's a quote. Biology, they say, the presence of complex, functionally integrated machines, like this bacterial motor, uh, have supposedly cast doubt on Darwinian mechanisms of self-assembly, sparked new interest in the design hypothesis. So they're using scientific terminology here. Um, um, the, the bacterial flagellum actually is kind of their poster child and appeared again and again and again in the, in the Kitzmiller trial. It almost just seemed as though their entire case was, was riding on the tail of the flagellum. Uh, it was brought up so many times. Um, that's really their, their, the main example that they give again and again and again. Okay. Now, the thing that you hear from them regularly is the claim, we're not creationists. Right? Um, idea science. Uh, these are both quotes from Discovery Institute uh, spokespeople. Uh, ideas and creationism just aren't the same. Ideas, not creationism. They'll, they'll put this in op-eds and letters to the editor. They'll say this very regularly, um, claiming that they're different. And this was one of the things that was uh, at issue in the trial because courts had previously ruled on creation science, and they wanted to say, oh, no, those rules, those court cases don't apply to us. Uh, and one of the things that, that was mentioned was the way in which intelligent design is defined and described in that book, Pandas and People. So here's a quote from the textbook. Intelligent design means, it says, that various forms of life began abruptly through an intelligent agency with their distinctive features already intact, fish with fins and scales, birds with feathers, beaks and wings, etc. Okay. So uh, you can sort of see within this uh, some of the elements that things arose sort of as they are. So it's a rejection of evolution. Uh, and it's through some intelligent agency. And they'll often point out, look, there's no mention of God here. Uh, there's no direct appeal to, uh, to the Bible. Right? Why would you say that this is, uh, is creationism or has anything to do with that? Now, one of the things that was very nice about the trial and, and you're able to do in a trial setting is 
um, make use of the process of discovery and subpoena. And one of the things that we wound up doing was finding out a little bit about the history of the book of Pandas and People. And we're able to actually subpoena earlier drafts of that textbook and look at the manuscripts. So let's take a look now at uh, a comparison of this, which is what I just read in the published version, to one of the earlier manuscripts. And here is the way we see in the earlier manuscript. Creation means that the various forms of life began abruptly through the agency of an intelligent creator with their distinctive features already intact, fish with fins and scales, birds with feathers and beaks and wings, etc. Okay, So what had happened here, right? Uh, you had the very same definition, but instead of intelligent design, intelligent agency, you had creation, creator. Right? They'd taken out the one and put in the other language, but kept the content the same. Now, this is just one example, but it was pervasive, and one could see not just this in one draft, but we were able to subpoena actually a whole series of drafts uh, which went back uh, to the early 80s. Under a different title, they changed titles as they went along. Earlier it was called Creation Biology, and then they called it Biology and Creation, and then Biology and Origins, and finally the name that was published under Pandas and People. Uh, and in tracking the use of terminology in these earlier drafts, a very interesting pattern arose, right? If you take a look at the two lines in the graph, the word count on terminology that says creation, creationism, creationist uh, is tracked in red, and in those early drafts, you see that uh, as the dominant one, and really nothing at all with regard to the term intelligent design and so on. Uh, and then, uh, suddenly, right, at this point, a total switch, okay? And just as in the example that I showed you, every place that had had creationism, we then had intelligent design, creationist was changed to intelligent design proponent. Okay? So here you have a very nice switch of terminology uh, in really just a search and replace kind of way. Um, and what was it that happened? What, what was at that, um, that switch there? If you take a look, that's happened in the middle of 1987. So the early 1987 version has the creationist language. The version, the manuscript at the end of 87 has the intelligent design language. So what happened in between there? That's the point where the Supreme Court issued a ruling against creation science and creationism saying that teaching it in the schools is unconstitutional. Okay? Uh, this was a, a, a case in Louisiana that went all the way up to the US Supreme Court. And there you had a ruling. And you can just sort of see at the, uh, at the meeting that they must have had, hmm, the Supreme Court has just ruled that we're unconstitutional. What should we do about that? And someone said, hmm, well, maybe we should change the name. <laughs> and literally, it seemed as though it was, a, it was a word processor kind of change. And let me just show you uh, one of the nice examples of that. Um, here's a, a scan from one of those earlier drafts where the term was creationists. And as I said, at the, in the published version, it was intelligent design proponents. But in the second last of, of, the, of the drafts before the published version, uh, this form was found. Can you see it? C design proponent cysts. Okay. It's, it's the missing link. Okay. Uh, 
this, this is an example that shows you really the transitional form between, yes, transitional forms do exist, uh, between creationism and, uh, and intelligent design. So this was something that uh, was just very clear uh, in the case. There was lots of evidence that uh, we were able to present, uh, but clearly a, a smoking gun here uh, with regard to that claim. Now, how about this claim, that, that intelligent design isn't religion? Um, that it's not religious. Here's William Dembski um, making a claim of this sort. Right? He says, intelligent design is a strictly scientific theory devoid of uh, religious commitments. And again, if you look at op-ed pieces and things that they say in, in public forums, this will be something that, that's very common in what they say. But if you're familiar with their literature and what they say in other forums, uh, you'll see that that's not really consistent. So here's William Dembski speaking again uh, but to a different audience, an audience of, of supporters, and here's what he says. He says, the world is a mirror representing the divine life. The mechanical philosophy was ever blind to this fact. Intelligent design, on the other hand, readily embraces the sacramental nature of physical reality. Indeed, intelligent design is just the logos theology of John's gospel, restated in the idiom of information theory. So here, it's very clear that this is a religiously based, in fact, a based on a particular uh, religion. And there are lots and lots of such examples. And what I want to do is just give you a, just a, a sampling of some of these things to show um, the religious basis of this. Here's a, a quote from uh, Philip Johnson. Uh, he's the uh, now retired uh, law professor who's really credited with organizing the intelligent design movement. Uh, and here's what he uh, has written about this. My colleagues and I, uh, of, of the intelligent design movement, my colleagues and I speak of theistic realism, or sometimes mere creation, as the defining concept of our movement. This means we affirm that God is objectively real as creator, that the reality of God is tangibly recorded in evidence accessible to science, particularly in biology. Okay, so. Uh, this is the defining concept. So it's really quite disingenuous to say that there are no religious commitments. This is base, uh, basic to it. Elsewhere, Johnson said, you know, either the gospel of Christ is the centerpiece of the new order or it's nothing. Okay? So really, this, this is at base uh, a religious position. Uh, one of the things that came out uh, in the trial was uh, a leaked document from the Discovery Institute, uh, essentially an internal fundraising document that laid out a strategic plan for how they were going to get their view into the schools. So this is from the preamble to that, uh, talking about what they see as uh, the social, um, terrible social consequences of materialism, the scientific uh, worldview of, of materialism. They say it's been devastating. Um, what are some of the social consequences that they're talking about here, the, the social evils? Um, things like abortion, homosexuality, uh, divorce, these are the, the standard sorts of things. Uh, this is from the Discovery Institute, which also has uh, very much of a, a laissez-faire pro-capitalist uh, view. And so they also mention uh, product liability laws uh, as one of the evil consequences <laughs> of this. Uh, and, and so they say, we have to defeat it. We have to defeat materialism and cut it off at the source. The source, they say, is scientific materialism. So this is an attack against science as a whole. Right? Design theory, they say, promises to reverse the stifling dominance of the materialist worldview and to replace it with a science consonant with Christian and theistic convictions. So here in this internal document, it becomes very clear again um, the... Uh, the religious nature of their view. And one could go on and on and on. I'll just mention one recent example uh, that uh, you may have seen. Uh, 
uh, Ann Coulter, in her new book, Godless, um, uh, spends almost a third of the book uh, attacking evolution and promoting intelligent design. That's a, that's a large part of this that didn't really get too much play in the, in the press, uh, mostly her, her other statements uh, about the 9-11 the widows uh, was, was what got play. Uh, but really her understanding of evolution was really on a par with her understanding of the, the grief of these, of these women. Um, and you can see the way in which he's putting it forward. Evolution, the claim is, is godless. We need to replace this with uh, intelligent design. Now it's interesting, right, it wasn't just uh, Coulter alone. Where did she get some of this? Well, it turns out she got it from uh, the Intelligent Design Group. Here's William Dembski uh, shortly after the publication and his blog saying, I'm happy to report that I was in constant correspondence with Anne uh, regarding her chapters on Darwinism. Indeed, I take responsibility for any errors in those chapters. And the big smiley face there. So, you know, he was, he was pretty pleased. He said, you know, Anne Coulter is going to promote our mov movement more than, uh, than anyone else. I actually think that it's, it's probably more a sign of, of how low the, this has sunk if, if Ann Coulter is, is, the, is the leading representative of this. Uh, that's, uh, that's unfortunate. Now, here's, here's the thing, right? Godless is uh, the notion that's operative here. The wedge document there talks about the, um, the theistic consequences uh, that have undermined this, right? And we have to replace it with something that supposedly is uh, consonant with a theistic understanding. And here's where I wanted to step back and, and do a little bit about the theological view. Is it really the case that evolution is godless? Because this is portrayed as the science versus religion, Darwin versus God. And, and here's where I want to, uh, to make us think a little bit about that and question whether that's so. Even though that's put forward in the stereotypical media reports, and it's certainly the way the creationists want it to be pr promoted, uh, let's take a look and see if that's really true. So is evolution necessarily godless? Well, not necessarily. Here's a, here's a little cartoon that uh, kind of gives an alternative view. It's God having uh, created the world, uh, resting a little bit and says, I'm tired of making decisions. Let's just go with natural selection. Uh, now, that's kind of a, a, an amusing, funny way to put this, but in fact, that's a dominant theological position. Uh, that's a view that says God creates the world with its natural laws in place uh, that give rise to all of the complexities of the world. And it's not the case that, dark, that God has to go in and constantly fiddle with things. He creates it in such a way that the laws, including the evolutionary laws, uh, are in place to produce creation as, as intended. And this is a, a, a mainstream theological position. Uh, it's a position uh, that was put forward uh, in the Catholic Church. So um, the previous pope, John Paul II, uh, had an encyclical um, letter to the uh, Pontifical Academy of Science where he talks about evolutionary theory as it's more than a hypothesis, well supported by evidence, and not in contradiction to Catholic faith. Uh, that actually made big news, but it, it shouldn't have been news because this was old, uh, an old position within the Catholic Church. Uh, pope Pius XII, back in the 1950s, had said uh, very much the same thing, that evolution is not in contradiction with faith. Now, it's not usually from the Catholic side that you get opposition to evolution. Usually it's been from the Protestant side. And so here I'm going to mention someone um, on, um, on that side. And, and there are lots of people that I could pull from, but I, I mentioned Benjamin Warfield here, who was a theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary, and here's what he wrote. Uh, he says, I don't think there's any general statement in the Bible 
any part of the account of creation in Genesis 1 or 2 or anywhere alluded to that need be opposed by evolution. Now, why is Warfield important? Warfield was the theologian who was uh, responsible for getting together the series of pamphlets called the Fundamentals. Okay? And it was out of that, those series of pamphlets that much of the fundamentalist movement got started. So this is an interesting way in which sort of current fundamentalists who oppose evolution have forgotten really their, their roots in history. Um, those people didn't see that there was a necessary contradiction here. Uh, the, the way that I put it in, in Tower of Babel was that evolution is godless, sure, but it's godless in the same way that plumbing is godless. Okay? Uh, as scientists, uh, we go about our business, uh, as plumbers go about their business, and you don't, as part of that process, uh, appeal to the divine, appeal to miracles, uh, but it doesn't mean that you're an atheist. It doesn't mean that you're, uh, you're godless. That's a different kind of question. Now, this is not... Uh, uh, an unusual view. This is a mainstream view. So let me just give you a couple more examples. It's called theistic evolution, generally. There are other, other names. But uh, here's a statement from the Presbyterian Church. There's no contradiction between an evolutionary theory of human origins and the doctrine of God as creator. Lots of mainstream uh, Protestant um, denominations have these sorts of statements, saying that there is no contradiction. That's a dominant... Theistic evolution is a dominant... Uh, Christian view. And this is the thing that, that never really gets across because the way in which the creationists want to put this forward is, is though they're representing the Christian view, whereas in fact they're rejecting the mainstream Christian view. They're a, they're a much narrower um, uh, sectarian view. Uh, and just to, to hammer this point home, here's a quote from uh, William Dembski uh, explicitly rejecting that mainstream view. Design theorists, he says, are no friends of theistic evolution. So they're rejecting the mainstream Christian view. This is an important thing to recognize um, that the way typically this puts forward as though they're representing Christianity um, uh, is not so. And this is what came across uh, to the judge as well. This is a narrow um, special interest uh, form of religion. Lots of examples that one could give. Uh, and, and here's some to just uh, show this in a slightly different light. Here's an interview at uh, Christian Book, which is an evangelical um, book, and it is asking someone, you know, what's been the response of the Christian community to your work, and who's being interviewed here? Uh, this is Philip Johnson again, the leader of the intelligent design movement. He says, I'm extremely controversial or even dismissed out of hand in the Christian academic community in the moderate to liberal mainstream denominations. Okay? Dismissed out of hand. Okay? This is not the dominant view. How about this? Here's Dembski speaking in 1995. He says, it's ironic that the design theorists have received an even cooler reception from the theological community than from the Darwinist establishment, which not surprisingly isn't well disposed towards the design theorists either, uh, which of course is true. Science has never taken this seriously. But it's not recognized that the theological community has also been uh, equally unhappily, unhappy with them. Have things gotten better for them? No, they haven't. Here's Dembski now speaking in 2005, noting a statement from uh, the president of the Institute for Religion in the Age of Science. So this is a pro-religion um, group. And he says, Michael Cavanaugh has now issued a formal warning about intelligent design, the Wedge, and Seattle's Discovery Institute, urging that people take seriously the threat to education and democracy that these pose. And what was it that Kavanaugh uh, said, describing ID, he said, this is totalitarian religious thought. Right? Uh, this is not uh, the kind of, of uh, religious Christian view uh, that we really want to, to hold. 
Here's one more, uh, a recent one from uh, Robert John Russell, who's the founder of another similar group. And he said, intelligent design offers an apparent apologetic hope to believe in Christian Christians when there's none to deliver. It makes Christianity seem foolish to agnostic scientists who might otherwise have listened to us. It promises only eventual disappointment to Christians who believe in it. The lesson to Christians, he says, is that we should abandon ID as fool's gold. Okay? This is not something that one generally hears about this, but this is very common. Uh, what about the evangelicals go? Okay? Those are the mainstream to liberal ones. Well, how about this? Here's Johnson again. And he says, the most peculiar reaction I get is the hostility I encounter from many professors at Christian colleges and seminaries. You'd be amazed, he said, if I gave you a list of the evangelical institutions that don't want me on campus. Okay? So even from that side, there's getting opposition. Here's one more. Francis Collins, right, head of the Human Genome Project now, uh, a biologist, scientist, and also a professed evangelical Christian. So he was asked about uh, intelligent design uh, on um, an inter interview on the Tucker Carlson show. Uh, this was, this was uh, just, uh, uh, I think, last year. And, and he said that he, he thought it was bad in not just a scientific way, uh, but from his own theological position as well. He says, I'm not an advocate of intelligent design. I think it sets up a God of the gaps kind of scenario. So what's he talking about here? This is not his own view. This is actually a very standard theological objection to a type of argument. And, he, and here's the way he puts it. Well, you know, we haven't yet explained this particular feature of evolution, so God must have done that. And that's really the strategy that you see again and again and again through all creationist writings. They point to something that they say, here's a problem with evolution, here's a gap, here's something they can't explain, and the idea is, God did that. Okay? That's to say you find God or you say, think that you've proven God in the gaps in our understanding and the things that we can't yet explain. It's called the God of the gaps argument because you're, you're finding God in the things that we don't yet know in, in our ignorance. And, and Collins is then articulating the theological objection to this. He says if science ultimately proves that these gaps aren't gaps after all, which is to say science progressively explains more and more about the world, um, then where's God? Okay. God gets crushed out uh, as those gaps get closed. And he says, we really ought not to ask people to do that. So here he's giving really what's a standard theological objection to a standard argument, which is the basic uh, intelligent design view. And just one final more, here's a whole book <laughs> from a group of evangelical scientists uh, called Perspectives on an Evolving Creation, which is arguing for uh, evolution uh, and doing this from what they say is a, uh, is a clear um, uh, evangelical perspective. So that's a part of the story that I want to try to uh, emphasize. It's the reason I've spent so much time on this, because you never hear about this. It's always portrayed about um, evolution as being against religion generally, or against Christianity generally, as though their position is representing the whole view. And, and really, that's just not at all the case. It's a very narrow view and does not represent uh, the general view. Uh, and evolution really uh, is not equivalent to atheism, which is what the judge said as well here. The defendants, the ID defendants in the case, and many of the leading proponents of ID make a bedrock assumption which is utterly false. Presupposition is that evolutionary theory is antithetical to belief in the existence of a supreme being and to religion in general. So he was objecting to uh, this, uh, saying that uh, it's presuming something uh, claiming to be science and yet making this religious uh, objection uh, and one that really is false.
So that's, a, that's one aspect of the case, really showing that intelligent design is religion, showing that it's a particular form of religion, uh, and uh, then showing how um, uh, it really makes the same kind of arguments that creationism made before as really just relabeling that. Now the other part of it was uh, the part having to do with science. Okay? It claims to be science, uh, and yet the judge said none of the arguments that are presented by the creationists in the case uh, uh, were convincing. Uh, and he concludes that not one defense expert uh, was able to explain how the supernatural action suggested by ID could be anything other than an inherently religious proposition. Okay? Accordingly, we find that ID's religious nature would have been evident to an objective observer because it directly involves supernatural designer. Okay? Now, this is part of the testimony that our side gave, saying intelligent design, like other forms of creationism, uh, are fundamentally rejecting the basic requirement of science, which is to uh, make appeal to things that one can test against the natural world. These are natural explanations, uh, empirically uh, testable, and so on. Um, and although we made that argument, it actually turned out that we probably didn't even need to be there because their defense experts uh, were saying pretty much the same thing, that they were admitting that this violated the ground rules of science. Uh, so here's a, uh, their three expert witnesses, uh, um, Michael Behe, Scott Minnick, and Steve Fuller. Uh, and in the final case uh, opinion, uh, you see each of them uh, noted by the judge as having admitted the same thing, that Behe admits that this is not uh, designed by the laws of nature. It's impossible that designer is a natural entity, recognizing, uh, admitting uh, that the ID group posits a transcendent supernatural uh, designer. Minnick saying that, um, that this is something that violates the ground rules of science and it has to be broadened to allow supernatural forces to be considered. Um, Fuller uh, saying the same thing, that the, the ground rules have to be uh, rejected in this way. So um, their side essentially ad admitted this. It, it, it made it far easier than, uh, uh, than it, uh, it, it was thought to, to have been before. So here's, here's some examples of this um, from the textbook of Pandas and People. So you can see exactly how this works. So here's an example. It says, this book is going to present you, the student, Two interpretations, right? Those who hold the two alternative concepts, those with a Darwinian frame of reference, as well as those who adhere to intelligent design. Now, this is being set up in really exactly the same way that was set up previously under the creation science model, right? The, the one that was ruled unconstitutional by the courts before. There, the terminology was creation science versus evolution science, but the strategy was the same. It was put up as though there are only two alternatives, and then what they do is go about trying to poke holes in evolution and make you doubt it, where the thought was, well, if, if you doubt that, this is the one that's left over, without then having to give any positive evidence for, uh, for their own view. And in that earlier case, uh, the judge said this is a, uh, a faulty, uh, flawed argument. It's a false dichotomy. Um, uh, it, it does not represent uh, a valid argument. And what we saw here was really the same argument in pandas uh, given in exactly the same way, but with just different terminology. So here's an example from pandas of, of how these explanations supposedly work. Um, a quote from pandas. Is there any alternative explanation for the marsupial bones and pouches other than that they're homologous? 
and therefore evidence of common ancestry. That's the scientific view. Yes, it says, there's another theory, and that's that marsupials were all designed with these reproductive structures. Now, you might expect that they would then go on to explain that, okay? But that's it. That's the explanation. They were designed like that. And again and again and again, throughout the book, the pattern is exactly the same. Here's something that the scientists say, oh, but that's doubtful. But there is another explanation. The explanation is it was designed like that. And that's the end of it, okay? That's, that's the extent of those explanations. Now, in all of my reading of the intelligent design literature, I've only found one place where they're more specific than that. And it had to do with Philip Johnson explaining the peacock's tail. So this is, the, this is the one case where they get a little more specific. So let's take a look at Johnson so we can see how the theory really works. The peacock, says Johnson, this is a quote, is something that an uncaring evolutionary process would never allow to develop, but which is, quote, just the kind of creature that a whimsical creator might favor. Okay. So here you see the difference, right? You've got the scientific explanation, the evidence on that, one hand, and on the other hand you have divine whimsy, Okay. okay, so I hope you can see the difference between the scientific explanation and this other. It, it's, it's really quite different. Um, it violates this basic presumption uh, that in science you have to appeal to uh, testable uh, natural uh, explanations. Here's an example. In philosophy, it's called methodological naturalism. It's a fancy term, but uh, Sidney Harris from science... Uh, from American scientists had this cartoon that nicely summarizes it. You've got this one guy who's been working at the board very hard with these elaborate equations, uh, but he, obviously he's, he's got a gap in there. And then he writes, then a miracle occurs. <laughs> and his colleague says, you know, I think you should be a little more explicit here in step two. <laughs> uh, that, in essence, is the basis of the ground rules of science. You can't appeal to a miracle uh, to explain something that's a gap, right? You've got to be able to give um, uh, an explanation in terms of natural processes, uh, ones that, that, are, that are testable. Um, really, this is, this is the defining characteristic of science from the point in which science became science. Uh, we use the term now, science, but originally science was called natural philosophy. Okay, that's, that's actually the, the original term. And what we meant by natural philosophy was just this kind of approach. And what was natural philosophy re reacting against? It was reacting against a previous view that did allow explanations in terms of uh, transcendent supernatural forces. Uh, it, was, it was called the occult philosophy. And really science was a reaction against, natural philosophy was a reaction against the occult philosophy and occultism generally. So really what's going on here is that intelligent design and other creationists are wanting to bring back this old view, um, this pre-scientific view. Um, and it, it came across very clearly in the trial when Michael Behe, uh, under cross-examination, um, uh, ad admitted that under his definition of science, this broad definition, uh, that astrology uh, would uh, be included as well. Uh, things that appeal to the supernatural in that way. Um, and, and this is the thing I think that's important to keep in mind. This is really undermining a basic assumption here. Uh, one of the things that I thought was kind of amusing, I found a p picture of Behe um, sitting in his office. Uh, here he is, uh, his, his book's in the background. But if you look carefully at the T-shirt that he's wearing, uh, you can tell there 
he's actually got a, a wizard <laughs> uh, who looks just like the astrologer up above. I think it's probably Gandalf or something. But I think it's emblematic of the nature of the intelligent design movement. I actually wrote an article at one point called The Wizards of Id. Uh, and, and this is the nature of, uh, of, their, of their view. All right. Here's another example, uh, probably the one that's most familiar, from Behe. This came up again and again in the trial. The, the claim that uh, irreducible complexity is something that, that evolution can't explain. Um, probably the most common uh, argument that you hear from the intelligent design group. And what, what, what irreducible complexity means, according to Behe, is a functional system uh, um, such that if you remove any of the parts, uh, it doesn't function. His example is a mousetrap. You've got to have all these parts. You take away the, the spring, you take away the hammer, you take away these things, and, and it's going to catch no mice and so on. And his claim is that science can't explain this, that evolution can't produce these things. Here, here's his argument. He says any precursor to an irreducibly complex system that's missing a part is by definition non-functional. Okay, so the claim is, here's something that science can't explain, that evolution can't explain. Okay? And uh, as before, what you see here is the dual argument, here's a problem for you, and if you can't do it, then, then we must be right. Um, there are lots of ways of, of uh, showing what's wrong with this, uh, and uh, conceptually, uh, one can give an argument. In Tower of Babel, I showed uh, an argument using clocks. Uh, which Beakey in print uh, admitted uh, was a problem for his view, and he said, I'm going to have to change my definition and fix it. Uh, but he hasn't yet fixed it, uh, and, and really doesn't seem to be anything that he can do to fix it. This is actually something that we can now observe very clearly uh, and see the evolution of irreducibly complex uh, objects. Some of the research that, that uh, I do with colleagues using evolving digital organisms uh, where uh, essentially, you have little computer programs, little viruses that self-replicate, uh, randomly mutate their code, and are naturally selected, uh, can be observed to uh, evolve complex traits. Uh, and this is something that, that was uh, kind of a nice uh, side effect of a study that we did. Uh, since we're close to time, I'll just go through this rather quickly. This was a study where we were actually testing some of Darwin's ideas about how complex functions can arise. Darwin was quite aware that organs of extreme perfection uh, would be something that his, his uh, view would have to explain. It would be a problem. And he talked very explicitly and candidly about how he would uh, have to explain this. And he had views about how evolution could produce such structures. And so what we were doing was trying to see whether Darwin's hypotheses about that could be observed and, and confirmed in this new digital environment. Uh, and in fact, we found out that that we could see them. We see the, the evolution in the system uh, of a very complex logical function uh, that arises out of a population that has no ability to do this uh, and in the end uh, does. And we're able to track literally mutation by mutation uh, how it is that you go from a code that cannot do it to uh, a specific sequence that can. And the, the very hypotheses that Darwin suggested that you would see to produce these are just the ones that we saw. So this was actually something that um, was out to test some of Darwin's views, and um, it turned out by happenstance that, that one of these complex functions that we discovered at the end, um, if you do knockout experiments, you can remove the instructions, uh, and turns out by happenstance that uh, 
Uh, they're irreducibly complex uh, in BT sense. So this was not specifically part of the, the study itself that was published, uh, but you can look at those things and you can see, oh, these things are irreducibly complex. And the cool thing is you can watch as evolution produced them okay, in just the way that Darwin suggested. So, you know, Darwin was right, not surprising. Um, this is something where uh, we're now in a position to literally observe very directly why that irreducibly complex argument uh, uh, is, uh, is fallacious. Uh, you can see evolution producing these things. Uh, evolution uh, can do uh, the range of things that uh, biologists have gotten evidence for over decades and decades. This is a very well-developed and very rich theory. And, and in science, really, the ultimate test is, is always this practical one, right? You have confidence in the veracity of a scientific hypothesis uh, if using it works, okay? Uh, we know that something's true because using it makes a difference, a practical difference. And evolution is like that. Um, evolutionary theory uh, isn't a theory in the sense of a guess. It's the theory in the sense of an explanatory structure that makes sense of the world. It's a cause-effect relationship, principles that are observed and tested and can be used. Okay? Evolutionary theory is used in medicine. You need to have it to be able to understand uh, how uh, antibiotic, antibiotic resistance arises. You need to know it so that you have uh, therapies uh, that will work, keeping that into account. You need to know this in farming situations uh, so that um, pest resistance uh, to uh, pesticides is taken into account. Um, it's even something that's now being used in industry, the kinds of digital um, uh, evolutionary computation work that I was talking about is now being used in industry to evolve things, uh, to evolve uh, complex designs uh, that are sometimes better uh, than even human designers can do it. Evolution can produce more complex and useful things. So evolution works. We're using it all the time. Um, and the thing I've, I've said is that Americans will finally believe that evolution is true when they realize that you can make money with it. <laughs> uh, that's the position that we're now in. Uh, evolution can do that. Here's just a whole range of things where using evolutionary computation is producing just these sorts of things. It's being used in, uh, in aerodynamics, uh, computer chip design, software design, drug design, a whole range of, uh, of things. So here's the, the summary findings from the court. ID fails as science on three levels, says the judge. Any one of them would have been sufficient to rule it out as science. First, violates the centuries-old ground rules of science by invoking and permitting supernatural causation. That's the key thing, really. Uh, the previous court had ruled against creation science for the same reason. Secondly, the irreducible complexity arguments uh, have the same flawed, illogical, contrived dualism. Uh, of creation science before that. And the negative attacks uh, on evolution have been refuted. Uh, really, that's actually a pretty minor one in this. It's the other ones that are more central, and really the first one in particular. So that was the resolution of this. Uh, the court was very clear. Uh, this does not qualify as science. This is religion. Uh, this is unconstitutional. Now, there's actually one more thing. People always ask, well, where is the, the creationist movement going to be going from now? Uh, and we already saw the beginning of their movement, uh, their new strategy in, in the Dover case, where they were talking about gaps and problems. And the new slogan that they use is, is teach the controversy. 
uh, and they wanted to, to introduce it in that way. Uh, but the judge uh, recognized that and said, no, this is, this is uh, not acceptable either, uh, that claiming that you're going to introduce uh, just the controversy but, um, but not supposedly ID itself directly uh, is a tactic, he says, that's at best uh, disingenuous uh, and at worst a canard. Uh, so he, uh, he ruled that out as well. There was one last thing, though, that came out uh, in looking at the drafts of the next edition of Pandas and People, uh, came across the following. Sudden emergence holds that various forms of life began with their distinctive features already intact, fish with fins and scales, birds with feathers and wings, and so on. Okay. So it looks as though they've got a new strategy. They're going to change the name one more time. Uh, and, and towards the end of the trial, uh, the attorney asked uh, Michael Behe in cross-examination, are we going to be back here in court in a few years arguing about sudden emergence theory? Uh, and the judge from the stand said, not on my docket. Because <laughs> I think at that time he had already recognized uh, that this really was uh, a deception. So that was the conclusion. Uh, what are the take-home points here? If, if you remember nothing else about uh, this talk and the, and the conclusions, here are just a few easy things to remember as to how it all came out in the end. Intelligent design, what was, what was the result? Just two words here, not science, okay. That's, uh, that's the basic uh, view. Second one, creationism relabeled. Okay. Just a new name for the old view that was already found in place. And finally, um, the one that was quoted most often in all the papers and certainly my favorite, intelligent design breathtaking inanity. So please remember that. Thank you very much. <laughs>